This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. On this, the eve of opening day of the state legislature, attention is being drawn to Kako. It's an app designed to draw attention to civil engagement. Kako means all of us. Essentially, we're in this together. The Hawaii Community Foundation, the Hawaii Executive Collaborative, and Pacific Resources Partnership, which represents the construction industry, are behind the rollout. They're rallying at the state capitol at this hour. We sat down with Mike Formby yesterday. He's a former Honolulu City Council member who's now taken a job to head PRP about what it hopes to achieve. The app was developed last year, and it was launched April-May timeframe. But it didn't get a lot of publicity, so this year what we decided to do was to partner with Hawaii Community Foundation because we knew the census was coming up, and this was an opportunity to get people to engage not only for the legislative session, for the elections in 2020, but also for the census because the census is so important to the federal funds in Hawaii. Okay, so so as far as then this rollout this year, you're, you're just trying to get uh, every get this on people's radar. That's right. Yeah, we're trying to take it up a notch. So last year we got about 2,500 subscribers. To me, because we've digitized the public directory of public officials, we should have 50,000, 100,000 subscribers. There's no, there's no cost. And basically it puts at your fingertips the ability to contact every legislator, every council member, the Department of Education. I mean, it, the, the congressional team, everybody. Now, we just talked to Representative Cynthia Thielen and Senator Laura Thielen just about, you know, their hopes for this last session. And, uh, yeah, they they just can't say enough about civic engagement and getting people to step up not only to vote but to also run for office. Yeah, it's super important. And if you look at the statistics for Hawaii, it's quite discouraging. So in 2018, I think in the primary, there was only 38 percent that voted. And in the general election, it was 52. So, you know, for for, for a large segment of, of the society that complain a lot, they need to be voting and they need to be giving positive input to their legislators on what they would like to see. Don't complain about what happens after the fact. You need to be engaged up front. And that's what the Kako app and that's what the publication Hawaii Perspectives is all about. So let's talk about Hawaii Perspectives because the report came out last spring and you folks updated it this fall. Right. Past fall. That's right. So what we did is we took the spring results, which were quite eye-opening, and it and, and the spring report followed the Alice report. So the Alice report gave us the hardcore statistical side. The spring Hawaii perspectives gave us the human mindset or the human element to what was happening in Hawaii. And we decided in mid-2019 to do a deeper dive to sort of find out what sacrifices are people making to stay in Hawaii. And in light of those sacrifices, where did they get their strength? And it's quite revealing in this report, which is now going around, it's the blue cover, it's quite revealing that there are a lot of sacrifices that people are making to live here, like two or three jobs, and not eating out, and not going on vacation. But they look to their community, and it's the strength of their ohana that keeps them in Hawaii. So that really, I think, bodes well for a legislature that wants to find ways to strengthen community by by building affordable housing and improving our public schools and doing all those things that make us stronger as a community. So uh, we're going to see some of that uh, manifested in bills at the legislature this session? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I think they're going to be announced here, you know, in the next couple of days, but there are packages that are, are really focused on addressing these crises in Hawaii. And the statistic now in the polling is over 50% know someone who has already left the island in their household or is seriously considering leaving. And so it is a high percentage. And what we also found was that many of the younger demographics would leave Hawaii, and then once they're away, they would find a way to come back. The sad side is that optimism and hope is really down. So when you look at the people that lived in, have lived in Hawaii for over 20 years, what we call longtime residents, they're not as optimistic for the children. So they look at the keiki, and they don't feel like the keikis have the future, the futures in Hawaii that they had. And so it's about everybody across all demographics, young to seniors, engaging to build a better Hawaii. Now, you have just come off of working in the public sector. You know, you you were at the city council and you uh, worked with uh, Colleen Honabusa uh, in D.C. So what perspective are you bringing to the table when we see a report like this? Yeah, so what we tried to do, and then, I so I'm sort of hesitant to say this, but the reason the reason we produced the report 
is it sort of civically engaging for the broader public who doesn't always speak up for themselves. So, and I understand that because maybe you're working two or three jobs or you have children that you have to pick up from school and you don't, maybe you have a senior that you have to do elder care for that you don't have time to go down to the legislature or the city councils and engage and express the frustrations that you experience or the challenges that you experience. So we do this polling so that we canvass and then we give it to the legislature and to the city councils and we tell them this is what's going on in your community. But the truth is, the strength of a democracy is much greater if the people speak for themselves. We shouldn't have to poll and then give the polling results to the legislature and to the councils. So the goal of the COCO app is to get people to engage themselves because it's at their fingertips. So they can find any legislator, any council member on all the islands. They can email them, they can call them, they can find out what bills are up for hearing, they can submit testimony. And that's what we're really trying to do is, is trying to get people to speak for themselves and I think it was Theodore Roosevelt who said, people should be actors and not critics. And that's what we find now is a lot of people speak up when they want to criticize. They don't like something that's happening, but they should be proactively engaging. In other words, they should be actors on the front end. And that's where we're trying to get at PRP. Yeah, both of the Thielens said that uh, it's so important to have people show up and sit at the table with them because when they sit eye to eye, you can move a lawmaker that a little bit off maybe their the, their staunch position, um, you know, maybe not to reverse it, but it uh, it helps the understanding. Did you find that when you were um, a city council member? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, even in D.C. nowadays, because of the technology, you get thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of form submissions. So there's a group that will advocate for a community to just push this button, and it automatically puts your name on it, and it sends it in. But the truth is, it doesn't have a lot of value because it's not personalized. And it's real easy to just push that button and actually not know whether or not you even believe what you submitted. So it's the people that spend more time and more effort to come down and to engage their legislators and their council members that get more results. And it's just the time factor that keeps people from doing that. So if you look, if you look at Hawaii and you realize how challenging it is for many people to, to live here day to day, they live paycheck to paycheck, expecting them to take time off and go down and testify live at a calendar that many times is delayed and and you think you're going to testify at 10:15 and it ends up they put it off to one in the afternoon it's very difficult so the advice would be if you can't show up live which is preferred and and many people can't then at least submit something personal in writing and that's what you have any you can always do that at, at any session because of our laws in the state of Hawaii you have the opportunity to submit written testimony in advance and there's a, there's usually a a fairly long window for written testimony. And so what we're encouraging people is to take the time, 15 minutes, 20 minutes out of their lives, at home, in the privacy of their own home, to submit written testimony saying you support an initiative or you don't, and maybe why, and, and contribute that way. One thing that uh, I wasn't aware of uh, that I learned talking to the Thielens is that uh, sometimes they say the chairs often uh, delay getting the testimony to the members until you know until a very late date, and so they suggested if if someone has to uh, submit testimony, you can email it around to other legislators and not just go through the one channel. Yeah, I know that's true, and I remember on city council that the morning of a hearing, I would get a stack of 350 <laughs> pieces of testimony, and you literally are sitting in the council hearing while you're going through these and you're sorting on pros and cons, right? You're looking for the you know, those that are for and those that are against. And, and you're, not even, you're not even in a position because of time constraints to actually read each one and find out the nuances. So to the extent that you can engage earlier and engage with more earlier, I think that's better. Any other takeaway uh, from this report? I think, you know, the, the fall report, there's a lot of optimism in here, and that's the good side. When the spring report came out, the green one, some people said, well, it's depressing. And it was somewhat depressing. The Alice report was depressing, but it's the reality in Hawaii. The, the blue report, the fall 2019 report, is encouraging because it tells the policymakers that we can solve these problems and the people are willing to wait, but they need the support of their communities. They need to be able to look to neighbors and friends who act like family even though they're not to you know pick up their kids when they can't pick up their kids or when something goes wrong, they know they can get help. So I think this report is more optimistic because it shows that we're all making sacrifices. We all have challenges to live in Hawaii. Cost of living is going up every year. But let's solve these problems and keep our people in Hawaii. And as far as the exodus, the brain drain, 
Yeah, and it's and to be honest, it's not just brain drain. So it's not just college graduates and above that are that are leaving. It's people that realize now that the opportunities on the mainland may be greater and the cost of living is less. And, I, and I'll just give you an anecdote of what we discovered and what we found out. Was with mobile technology now, a lot of people have these apps that allow them to look at homes across the United States. So there's like Trulia and Zillow, and there's all of these apps. And they go searching at a town that they would like to live at on the mainland. So they might go to Austin, Texas, or they go to you know, S Sacramento, California, and they start looking at the cost of housing in those in those towns and they realize that you can get a three bedroom, two bath house in those towns for one third or one quarter of what you would pay in Hawaii. And then they start looking at alternatives. So I think the technology makes it easier for people to look around and not, not feel like they have to stay in Hawaii. And what we want is we want people to understand if we solve the problems at home, you can stay in Hawaii because you want to stay in Hawaii. Hawaii is a special place and we want people to stay here. And the, I gotta tell you, the policymakers have have embraced this. They're working with with PRP, they're working with the Hawaii Executive Cons Conference and Hawaii Community Foundation, the Change Initiative. They're working with uh, labor groups and affordable housing groups and the Department of Education. They're working across the board to try to solve these issues. And I think it's a very optimistic time. I think it's a perfect year for getting things done. I'm confident on affordable housing and on public education, there's gonna be some, some big changes. That was former Honolulu City Council member Mike Formby, now the executive director of the Pacific Resource Partnership, talking up a new app for civil engagement and an updated survey of Hawaii residents that it conducted called Hawaii Perspectives. PRP hopes the report will aid lawmakers to improve the quality of life for island residents. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. You've probably heard of the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau. It's the organization tasked with marketing Hawaii as a tourist destination to places all over North America. Uh, today, it's funded by the semi-autonomous state agency, Hawaii Tourism Authority. But did you know it was started in 1902 and relied on contributions from Hawaii businesses? To fund a picture and lecture tour on the West Coast, a local businessman asked the Honolulu Chamber of Commerce and the Merchants Association for $100 per month for six months. It was a success, and Governor Sanford Dole approved the creation of the Hawaii Promotion Committee. In 1919, it changed its name to the Hawaii Tourist Bureau and began counting visitors, 8,000 in 1921. In 2019, Hawaii had nearly 9.5 million visitors through November. It's probably in no small part to promotion of the islands. The state spent more than $50 million on marketing last fiscal year. But who started the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau more than 100 years ago? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from the Realtors and staff of Locations, proudly supporting HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home.
Recycling is a big part of the Opala picture across the state. And as part of our newsroom series on trashing the islands, we have a snapshot of where the recycling programs are here on Oahu. Joining us live is Ashley Mizuo. Morning. Morning. Thanks for having me. So what were you able to find out as you talked to these recyclers? Yeah, so I talked to the two biggest recyclers here on Oahu, and that would be Triple R Recycling, who deals with the blue bin sorting um, for the city, and then also Reynolds, who does the Hi-Fi program. I mean, they have other entities as well within them, but that's kind of what they're known for here. What I've learned, I mean, what they were telling me was that in recent years, they've had to close a lot of their businesses or a lot of their locations just because they needed to downsize because they're not making enough profit to really sustain themselves. One thing that I really heard from both companies was the lack of increases in the handling fees for the Hi-Fi program. Essentially, they're saying that they hadn't really seen any increase since 2005. In 2005, it was about two to three cents they got back from the state for aluminum cans and plastic containers. And only in 2017, they did a study that showed that they needed to increase those fees um, for the state to reimburse the High Five program. And so that went up to three and a half cents for plastic bottles, seven cents for glass, and three cents for aluminum cans. And what the recycling companies were kind of saying is that the price that other countries are willing to pay for the recyclable material here has not really changed since 2005. And yet cost of labor, shipping, all of those things have kind of gone up. And that's kind of where they're at right now is trying to figure out how they can continue their businesses on this very difficult um, climate. Yeah, I know one recycler that I talked to said that he sends his items now to Vietnam. Yeah, and that kind of has to do with China no longer accepting a lot of recyclables here, and so they've had to go to other countries. Reynolds sends some of their things even as far as Saudi Arabia, and Triple R Recycling has had to turn to smaller markets like Korea. And so that's definitely dropped the prices. Like, for example, when recycling was really booming, Triple R said that they could get about $170 on average a ton for their cardboard, and now they're getting about $40 or $50 a ton. And then as well as for paper, they used to get about $120 a ton, and now they're making negative $15 a ton on paper because the price that countries are willing to pay are just not even enough to cover the shipping costs of those materials. We can hear from Dominic Enriquez from Triple R Recycling about this kind of struggle that he's had. We're making the same money or less as 2005. As of this past July was our first increase in the handling fees for the state program. You try to tell me if there's any businesses out there that hasn't raised their rates in 15 years. Yeah, so that's kind of where they're at right now is they're really looking for a way to sustain themselves. Um, Dominic said that people need to change their minds about recycling, that it's no longer a profitable business. It's you can't it can't be a for profit business. They need those government subsidies. And that's also something that Terry Telfer um, from Reynolds Recycling echoed as well. The future of recycling is going to be dependent on more and more government subsidies. In the past, Reynolds has reduced its locations. We can't really get any smaller and yet survive. Unlike most businesses, when your costs go up, you can raise your prices. In the recycling industry, we don't have that. It's interesting, yes, you can't get any smaller and still stay in business. Exactly, and it's kind of a catch-22 because the smaller they get, the less convenient it is for people to recycle, and the less people recycle, the less material they're getting, and the less material they get, the less they can sell. So that's where they're at right now. I think for Triple R Recycling, one of the more interesting things I found out um, was that their contract with the city is ending at the end of this year, and they've had the contract since the very beginning of the blue bins to sort that material, figure out where everything goes. But the city has said they're putting out an RFP to find someone who would be interested in creating a recycling facility closer to H Power. And so Triple R Recycling is a little concerned that they're not going to be getting that contract again. Jennifer Milholland is the Waste Reduction Coordinator at Kokua Foundation, which is a non-for-profit, pretty much an education service. And they're also an advocacy group. And they want to educate people on how to recycle. And that is a huge part of why these recycling places are unable to get the high prices that they would like from materials is because so much of the material, especially in the blue bins, is contaminated. Um, and that would mean that there's just like leftover pizza in a pizza box that makes it contaminated. Or people are throwing like random things in the blue bins, like rubber hoses and 
big sheets of metal that are not necessarily supposed to be going to triple our recycling. And then when that kind of material gets mixed in with the material they would like to sell, they get lower prices for that. And so Jennifer has kind of said that people really need to learn how to recycle and know what exactly goes in those blue bins. And so people want to recycle everything, so we just throw everything in. I'm hoping for the best, but the reality is in our sorting lines here on the um, island that there's multiple millions of pieces going through every single day, and they're doing the best they can, but a lot of contamination is still getting in and not being taken out. Yeah, and so that's pretty much where she's coming from, and she would like to see a lot more education effort from the city to kind of figure out not only what kind of education processes work and making people really understand recycling, but also um, potentially putting in some policy that would maybe make plastics have more clear labeling to show like this is what goes in blue bin and this is what doesn't. I mean, right now, you know, people may not know this, hopefully they do, but um, one or two number recyclables are the ones that get thrown in the blue bins. But those are kind of hard to see on the bottoms of plastic bottles. And so that's a little bit difficult. And she was talking about um, potentially having the state limit the kinds of plastics that come in. That way, everything, all the plastic that does come in would be recyclable. No states have really done that yet, but that is something that she's looking at. And what does the city have to say? I know that they've been talking with Kokua Foundation. They kind of came out with this waste reduction plan, but there's no, they haven't made a decision on what they're interested in doing yet. I know that she had said that even the limiting the kinds of plastics that come in is would be very, very difficult. Um, but it's like an interesting solution to the problem. All right, we'll see what happens at the end of the year. Thanks so much, Ashley. Yeah, thanks. We've been talking to HBR's Ashley Mizuo about recycling efforts here on Oahu. For stories on our series, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Saturday, January 25th, Hawaii Opera Theater brings a collection of operettas, musical theater, and more, all by American composers, to the intimate and acoustically rich HPR Atherton Studio. Experience song on stage in a whole new way. Station members enjoy discounted pricing. Get your tickets now at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service just moved to delist the Hawaiian hawk, or the eo, meaning it's no longer at risk of extinction. But apparently environmentalists disagree. We're joined by Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Nick Ruby for today's Reality Check. Morning, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, I guess that would be afternoon for you since you're in D.C. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. So interesting story about how the Hawaiian hawk is being used as a political pawn. Yeah, this is uh, somewhat interesting because typically when we think about a species being removed from the endangered species list, uh, it's a cause for celebration. It means that the species has sort of rebounded from the brink of extinction. Um, but given the politics of uh, today with President Donald Trump in the White House, uh, that's not necessarily the case. A lot of environmental groups say that there's been a push by uh, the Trump administration to um, uh, go after environmental regulations such as the Endangered Species Act to sort of make uh, clear the way for industry organizations to give them a better opportunity to, uh, say, develop or or um, pursue uh, oil and natural gas and, and, and other fossil fuel interests. Um, in, in the case of the EO, Hawaii's Fish and Wildlife um, Agency, or well, excuse me, the Federal Fish and Wildlife Agency, based out of Hawaii, said that they felt that that the bird has rebounded sufficiently and had a stable enough population to delist it. But a lot of organizations are saying not so fast. Um, a lot of the studies uh, that Fish and Wildlife have been relying upon are more than 10 years old and no other population studies have been done in, in that time, which raises the question, is the EO, is the Hawaiian hawk really as stable as, 
uh, as one's beliefs. Well, I was surprised because your article talks about how even Suzanne Case, the head of uh, Department of Land and Natural Resources, is kind of questioning this uh, move to delist. You know, saying what it's like it's premature. That's right. The the Hawaiian hawk uh, is endemic to Hawaii, and it use and and depending on the records that you're looking at, whether it's the prehistoric fossil records or uh, anecdotal um, historical records that have been passed down over the generations, the hawk. Uh, it, its range included much of the ar- archipelago, um, including all the way up from Big Island to Kauai. And now it can only be found on the Big Island alone. And what Suzanne Case, as the head of DLNR, said is that it, since it's limited to a single island, it leaves it open to numerous uh, threats, uh, stochastic threats, as she says, uh, which could be a hurricane or, or a lava flow that might destroy its habitat or further imperil the population that's there, because again, it's not spread out across the island. Um, if, say, the brown tree snake um, made its way to the big island, that could then uh, imperil this bird. Um, she had, of course, concerns with the population study, the 10-year-old population study um, as well, but it was mostly the idea of how the climate is also changing on the big island and, and sort of the impacts of that and the spread of rapid ohia death and basically, she ticked off all of these lists of issues that concern her and other state officials about um, the, the, uh, about threats that, that could potentially hurt this species in the future and oppose removing it from the endangered species list for that very reason. It's fascinating. I mean, is there any hope that uh, they can uh, stave off this delisting? Because it doesn't happen until next month. <laughs> no, no, this this is a final rule, so that means that uh, next month the Hawaiian hawk, for the first time in more than 50 years, will no longer be considered an endangered species. Uh, it is important to note that Fish and Wildlife said that if more analysis comes out and future studies show that the population is uh, dwindling, that maybe they could revisit that, uh, that designation, although given the Trump administration's history to date, I would say that that is unlikely. Wow. Interesting. Thanks so much, Nick. Really interesting story. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it, Catherine. That was reporter Nick Gruby with today's Reality Check. Uh, Read the story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kilauea Lodge and Restaurant on Hawaii Island, a rainforest retreat-like experience with rooms that include fireplaces, towel warmers, and stained glass windows. KilaueaLodge.com. The American Astronomical Society finished up its largest ever gathering at the Hawaii Convention Center last week. The event normally plays host to all things astronomy-related, and this year it was able to shine the light on the relationship between astronomy and indigenous peoples. Eight papers were submitted by Native Hawaiians, including researchers from the University of Hawaii, outlining uh, how they believe scientific development has affected and in some cases ignored the concerns of Native people. Uh, Sara Kahanumoku is a researcher at UC Berkeley and one of the co-authors. She uh, spoke with the Conversations Harrison Patino on that point of view in the midst of the 30-meter telescope controversy atop Mauna Kea. Among the authors in this paper in particular, there's a pretty strong consensus in that we all really feel that the impact of constructing TMT on Mauna Kea has been overwhelmingly kind of negative to Native Hawaiians in particular and kind of is a great way or a great case study that we can use to examine the impact of science more broadly on the people that live in the communities in which research is conducted. But that's not to say that there's consensus among Hawaiians in general or Hawaii or astronomers around the world on the impact of TNT. But I do think that the authors on this paper are pretty well aligned in how we feel that um, the TNT situation is impacting indigenous people in Hawaii. So this paper in particular discusses indigenous perspectives. So what do you think are some of the common misconceptions of indigenous perspectives on this issue? So I think one of the, I guess, the number one misperception in my mind is that indigenous people are not a monolith, right? So a lot of times when you talk to scientists about 
indigenous perspectives, in quotes. I think scientists tend to stereotype. Like, as humans, we have a lot of information that we take in every day, and it's easy for us to try to put people into categories. Um, but indigenous people are super varied. Um, we live all around the world. We have very different cultural systems and knowledge bases. Um, and so that means that there's a lot of nuance that goes into understanding how local indigenous communities and the places that you're working in think about the world and think about what they value. And so I think that that's one of the main things that I'd, I'd like to ask people to consider when we talk about TMT in Hawaii is that we have to place it in a Hawaiian context. And I think that some of the co-authors on our paper that are not Hawaiian did a really good job when we were writing together, making sure that they were deferring to the Hawaiian context and trying to be cognizant of the specifics that they maybe weren't aware of when we were writing. So where do the findings of this paper sit with the larger educational and astronomical communities as a whole? So far, we haven't actually gotten too much of a response from astronomers, but the responses I've gotten have been pretty positive. So most of the people that have replied to me have been early career scientists. So that means for people that aren't familiar with academia that these are scientists that don't have job security. They're students. They're still going through training that's needed to apply to jobs, or maybe they're new at their jobs, um, and they haven't gone through the promotion that will then allow them to basically work without getting fired. So most of the people that are reading this are those people that are kind of coming up the pipeline, which makes me really happy because I think that it shows that scientists are becoming more and more willing and interested in thinking about the human impacts of science. And the way that we do science is something that we need to give lots of thought to. So that's been really nice. And I think that in general, the responses from astronomers is that the paper has some implications for the astronomy community, but also tends to have broad implications for scientists in general or just people in general that are working with communities that, are, that they're not from or that are not similar to the ones that they're from. Our main recommendations are to basically consider what other people value and to employ relational communication or work as if you're trying to develop a true relationship with the community that you're working in. So I think that that was pretty well received. So I noticed in this paper that members of the astronomy community were asked about where their preferred spending might go or some proposed choices for alternatives to TMT. What were some of those choices? When we were talking about, you know, funding in general in the field of astronomy, um, and that includes, you know, funding for telescopes, but also funding for educational opportunities and training and public outreach, things like the, the like Astronomy Communication Center that's at that 9,000-foot mark on Mauna Kea, that's funded by science funding. And so when we were talking about where potentially to send science funding, we considered or we tried to put forth some, some proposals that maybe the NSF will consider to put funding more into educational opportunities that are truly community-based, so not just kind of speaking at a community and trying to disseminate knowledge, but doing more, you know, co-production of knowledge with the Hawaiian community and working with Hawaiian students, all issues, not just trying to get them into this educational pipeline. And then we also had a couple of other recommendations to establish a cultural impact assessment, to try to make sure that in the future, if people want to put more instrumentation on the mauna, that they actually spend the time trying to work with the community and get consent and understand the cultural impacts of projects like this. And then also just talking about things like trying to make sure that astronomers that work in Hawaii understand the Hawaiian context, because a lot of them don't even know that Hawaii was a kingdom before American overthrow. And so that means that there's a lot of context and history that is missing that could be really informative when you're trying to understand the implications of your present-day actions. So I'm glad you bring up the history, because this paper chronicles the history of decisions that led up to this current moment with TMT. So how do you put mm -hmm. this current moment in the context of TMT's overall timeline and the overall timeline of scientific projects on Mauna Kea? I think I would go further back and start with Western contact with Hawaii and colonization and astronomy during the Hawaiian Kingdom era. There's a lot of history and contingencies that led to the current situation that Hawaiians face in Hawaii, with colonization leading to land dispossession and lots of historical inequities that have made it such that we are the indigenous people of the land, but we're underrepresented in every aspect. And so I think that, you know, astronomy started on Mauna Kea in the 60s. That wasn't really the start of science's relationship with Hawaiians. And I think that astronomers that went into that time and, and wanted to develop the top of the mountain didn't have an understanding of the history of that land in particular and also the Hawaiian Islands. So we have a little bit of distance between what I would call the height of tensions regarding demonstrations at Mauna Kea and the moment right now. So why is it important that this paper is coming out now? The American Astronomical Society was holding their conference in Honolulu from January 4th through 8th. 
So we actually ended up submitting this paper to the National Academy of Sciences at the end of November, and we had gotten a call from somebody who was going to be on their panel on the state of the profession and societal impacts. So that's this panel that examines the impact of astronomy on non-astronomers. And I should note that this is the first time ever in their 200-plus year history that they're actually thinking about the impact of astronomy projects on non-astronomy communities. So we got a call from somebody on the panel that said, hey, this panel is happening in a week. Can you write us a paper on, you know, with a Hawaiian perspective on the Mauna Kea issue? And send it to us so I can bring it to the panel and make sure that Hawaiian voices are being heard in this really important decision-making sphere. So we ended up writing eight papers in the span of a week. But once we got the go-ahead to share it, then we decided to submit it at the same time as the AAS was hosting their conference in Honolulu to try to make the most impact, I guess, and also to spur some conversations at that conference. So I'm glad you're talking about impact because I think that the current dialogue on Mauna Kea has sort of opened up people to the idea that scientific research and development might have an ethical and a moral cost. Yeah, and I think that that was actually the main motivation behind our paper. And there have been a bunch of opinion pieces that my co-authors and other colleagues have put out about the Hawaiian scientist perspective on Mauna Kea. And I think our uniting theme is that science research has ethical and moral implications, and we shouldn't do science just for science's sake. We do science with people, and we do it among people. And our science has human costs and human impacts. And so in order to do good science, I think we also need to make sure that we're doing good by the people that we work with. That was Sarah Kahanumoku, a Native Hawaiian researcher from UC Berkeley, focusing on the relationship between indigenous people and astronomy. The American Astronomical Society Conference did agree to include a session that allowed Native Hawaiians to talk about the tension over the 10-meter telescope at Mauna Kea. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Today on Stargazer, HPR's Dave Lawrence talks about some mysterious radio signals from outer space. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet and also things we could try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, we're fortunate to have the expertise of Christopher Phillips available to us and on the line right now. Hey, Christopher, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave, good to be here. This week's Stargazers, Venus can be found in the southwest after sunset and will set in the west just before 9 p.m. The moon is passing through its last quarter phase this week, and so we should see a return of dark skies perfect for stargazing. Now, this week you have an unusual story, I understand. Something about mysterious radio bursts, and it even connects to the Honolulu area. Indeed. So last week saw the annual American Astronomical Society gathering on Oahu, where thousands of astronomers gathered to share the latest discoveries. One surprising announcement came from a group studying fast radio bursts, these mysterious signals we've been seeing from space. Now, we covered these on Stargazer some time ago. They are fast, repeating bursts of radio waves that appear to emanate from distant galaxies. But what's bizarre about these bursts is that up until now, they have been one-off events, and so following up on them has been impossible until now. And I understand these come from all over the sky and not just one location too, right? Exactly. And that adds to the mystery of their origin. However, a team from Canada was able to detect a repeating fast radio burst in a dwarf galaxy three billion light years away from the Earth, as well as one very close to home at a mere 500 million light years away. That's basically just across the street from a cosmic perspective. Ah, maybe they're just ordering a pizza from there. Easy, man. <laughs> and what do you think these things are, Chris? Well, we're not sure what is causing these bursts of radio energy, and there are all sorts of theories out there, such as rapidly rotating neutron stars, black holes, and of course that old chestnut, 
extraterrestrial intelligence. But after Edward Snowden told us there isn't anything about extraterrestrials and all the files <laughs> we've got, I think we're good, right? It's probably not E.T. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're probably right. As awesome as that would be, I'm sure they are probably 100% natural in origin. It's just probably something we've never seen before, which is really exciting. And we have to remember that the universe is a bizarre and wonderful place, so who knows what's around the next corner. Like that scene from Star Wars. Move along. Nothing, <laughs> nothing to look at here. <laughs> nothing to see here. <laughs> it's Christopher Phillips and another fun Stargazer report. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We'll catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Prior to the creation of the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau in 1902, there had been an effort to promote the islands as a tourism destination through the Hawaii Bureau of Information. That promotion started in 1892, but support and visitors wane, likely due to the bubonic plague that swept through at the turn of the century. Now, tourism has grown exponentially over the years while experiencing setbacks, such as World War II, Various labor strikes, 9-11, and the Great Recession. But the state's top industry finds a way back, like when Matson's steamship, the Lurleen, was called back from the war effort and brought visitors to the islands in 1948. Today, tourism is Hawaii's largest industry, with an expected 10.7 million annual visitors in 2020. Now, the promotion of tourism as a government-sponsored program started with W.C. Whedon, who in 1902 asked local businesses to help him advertise Hawaii to prospective visitors on the U.S. West Coast. Congratulations to Sid Melbourne from Pearl City. I know you. You're my former colleague. <laughs> Thanks for um, for listening. Uh, you got it right. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kumu Kahua Theater, presenting Way of a God, an historical tragedy based on Captain Cook's arrival in Hawaii, opens this Thursday. Tickets at kumukahua.org. Magna Chakrabarty. Coming up on the next On Point, New York Times columnist Nick Kristoff grew up in Yamhill, Oregon. A quarter of his high school classmates prematurely died, many from drugs and suicide, and many were his friends. So Kristoff and his wife, journalist Cheryl Wu Dunn, went back to Yamhill to find out why, and they found stories of both devastation and hope. That's coming up on the next On Point from NPR. Starting this afternoon at 2, following the world. Lurleen. Before it was a street name on Wilhelmina Rise, it was a Matson ship, actually one of six with that name. Matson Navigation Company's newest ship bearing the name is scheduled to arrive in the islands on Friday. In a nod to Matson's history in the islands, we bring you a tale from a time when the Lurleen was a cruise liner. We share a charming story of a shipboard romance and the promise to name a daughter after the vessel where her parents first met. We talked to Lurleen McGregor, who was descended from a Scottish sea captain. Her roots include Chinese, German, and native Hawaiian blood. Now, McGregor is a television producer who also does work with the University of Hawaii Center for Oral History. She recalled that she thought her mother's oral history was lost because of server issues. Her mother's memory is faded now due to old age dementia, so Lurleen was thrilled to learn recently that the recording survived. We listened to her mother recounting the story. She was a recent high school graduate traveling to the islands with her friends, and a, she had a chance encounter with a young Harvard graduate. Meet the product of that union, Lurleen McGregor. I did this in 2001 at Olelo. We were doing a Halia Aloha series of having community members come in and with the Center for Oral History from the UH under Warren Nishimoto at that point. And then with our production facilities at Olelo, we were training people to do oral interviews with, you know, kupuna primarily. Uh, most people did them of family members, but 
people did them of, you know, just older people they knew who had interesting stories. And so I thought I would do one of my mom in, again, 2001. So at that point, she would have been 77 years old. We did the interview and, you know, edited it down and made the little piece, a little six or seven minute piece, and, and then they were all strung together and aired on the station. And I had completely lost um, the tape and, you know, everything from it until recently when um, somebody from Olelo contacted the Center for Oral History and said, you know, we want to work with you because we have these old programs. So there were about nine episodes, each of them an hour plus long, you know, of all these four to six minute interviews. My mother's was in there. I thought it was lost and gone forever. So they found it and they sent it to me and I played it and it was, you know, such a gift really to see my mother back when she was 77 years old and fully coherent and her memory completely there and telling the story in a little more detail, I think, than maybe she ever told me about, you know, going to first class and hanging out with my dad and this and that. And, and even, you know, I, I don't recall her ever talking about what they did when they got here, you know, that he took her up to Pali and um, Tantlis and Kaneohe, and it was really cool to hear stuff. We have a snippet of it, so let's take a listen. My name is Madeline McGregor. My maiden name was Madeline Flover, but I am known out here as Lynn because Madeline is too hard a name to pronounce properly. I lived in Indianapolis for quite a few years and then moved east to Boston from where I came out here on a tour with a, a group of young ladies in 1940 when I had graduated from high school. Now in those days, young women didn't go traveling around by themselves very often, but my mother decided she wanted to give me something so beautiful for a graduation present that she let me come on this tour. Now there were maybe about 10 of us young women coming out with the tour guide. And we stopped at places along the, along the way, and then we got on the ship which was named Lurleen, and we came out here. And that was an exciting moment. It took about five and a half days, and uh, about two days out to sea, the tour guide got a message. She wanted somebody who would have a blind date with one of the guys up in the, f in the first class. So none of my friends wanted to go, and I was the only fool. I guess I was too young to know any better, so I accepted, and it was a ball. We, we did, I was taken up to first class. We were done in the, in the second class as a group, and I got to do things up in first class and go around with the group that was up there. Uh, my friend had just graduated from Harvard Law School and was anxious to get home and have his things, so he started out with me. Well, we, we landed. We got, uh, our group got together and we went out to the Moana Hotel. I love that place. Oh, it was so beautiful then, where you could lie out under the big banyan tree or you could sit on tables underneath it. And uh, we did that. Then the uh, tour guide let me go out with this masculine, this male group. So I was never with the tour anymore after that. I don't know really what they did, but I know what I did was simply terrific. I went out uh, uh, to a real bona fide Hawaiian luau, and that was my first experience with the taste of poi. And most people who first taste poi don't like it, but I loved it right from the beginning, and I never can get enough of it. But the 10 days went by in a hurry that we were supposed to be here. And so before I left, he asked me to marry him. And I said, well, hey, wait a minute. I want to go to college. I want to finish college before I get married. He said, okay, well, you get to college, you connect with me, and we'll, we'll go ahead and get married. So that was kind of an exciting way to end this beautiful trip. My husband was Scotch, Chinese, and Hawaiian. And my background is all German. And, and people said, you're going to have Scotch-German kids. You better watch out. That's going to be horrible. And you're not going to be very happy with the, the temperament and all. But I loved it. That's just a terrific story 
a really yeah. neat love story. <laughs> what did you think when, when, when you heard that again? When I heard her tell the story, I thought it was a beautiful love story. You know, it was something that, I mean, I remember growing up, they, them telling me that they named me after the ship because that's where they met. But I, I don't remember the color and, you know, that kind of detail. And it was really heartwarming to hear that. It just really is a sweet story for me. I, I never got to sail on the Lurleen, which I was very disappointed about. I got to go on a couple times when people were coming and going. But I've always just kind of tracked the history. You know, it got sold, and then they renamed, I think, some inner island bar one of their inner island barges. So they've kept the name alive, which, you know, I was very happy to see. And now, you know, of course, they've built a new ship with that name. So I really like the fact that it's tied to this period of Hawaiian history that ties it, you know, to my parents in that era of history where, you know, they met. This was the, pretty much the only, the primary mode of transportation to get to Hawaii. So it really speaks to a, a time in our past. Yeah, a wonderful time. I don't know if they, they call it what the, the, the golden age, right? I mean, yeah. when you think of how Matson started with the navigation company and then built the hotels to bring in the tourists, mm -hmm. you know, and then their part in the in the war. In the war, yeah, they st they carried troops, and um, I remember my mom saying that when she came back the second time during the war, and I, I think that was after she got married, um, the war had started, and so she came back on the ship to come to Honolulu, and the ship zigzagged the whole way just to throw the enemy off, I guess, and then they used it as a transport ship for troops. I feel very connected. I, I mean, for me, my safe place, kind of, my um, place that I prefer to be is the ocean. Um, I was very fortunate to be part of the Malama Honua Hokulea trip. I was also very fortunate more recently to be on a, a sailing cargo ship called the Kwai that goes from Honolulu down to Kiribati, a couple of the line islands, and then on to the northern Cooks, which are accessible pretty much only by several days ship travel. So they see outsiders very infrequently. They're not tourist destinations. You know, it's just, it's always so special for me to be on the ocean, to be on a ship that is just so close to the ocean and out there. I never get tired of it. Learning, your, your <laughs> name was meant to be. <laughs> but thanks so much. Oh, you're very welcome. That was Lurleen McGregor, whose parents named her after the ship they met on in 1940. She was the fourth of five children and the only girl. Matson's newest addition to its fleet, also named the Lurleen, is set to arrive on its maiden voyage to Hawaii Friday afternoon. The vessel will be the fastest, largest ship in Matson's fleet. The company, with its long history in the islands, is said to be the largest navigational company in the United States. And that wraps it up for today. Up tomorrow, it is opening day at the state legislature with lawmakers back in session to do the people's work. Hey, call our talkback line. Record your comments. Call 808-792-8217. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow, won't you, for more of the conversation.